forget the you know economics of whether whether we like a finite money supply or not if we just think about this from a practical implementation perspective this is what allows satoshi to build bitcoin whereas b money always remained just a cool idea satoshi's biggest contribution to the field of digital currency was just demanding a finite money supply once you make that demand you realize you don't want users to have independent bids you want there to be a consensus network asking price for bitcoin issuance i see it as there's a layer zero market that is helping us issue the initial supply of the currency to get it distributed into circulation. And then there's a layer one market that lets us settle transactions. Layer zero wouldn't be valuable without layer one, but layer one couldn't function without layer zero. I think the world's most secure software today is Bitcoin Core, because if an attacker were to find a bug that allowed them to steal Bitcoin, it will just steal the Bitcoin. Bitcoinizing the internet, if you like, actually closes the gap between the knowledge of exploits and the ability to, to leverage them economically. And I think it destroys the market for zero day vulnerabilities. I think Elon is courageous in some ways, but I also don't think he has completely bought into this idea that fundamentally the town square cannot be a company. I think the better approach for something like Twitter is to think of it as a decentralized service. We must think about how do we, like Satoshi did, how do we break down a social network into small enough pieces so that each piece can independently be provided by some kind of market. My belief is that the Bitcoin-powered internet actually will work better than today's internet. It will be faster, it will be more reliably, more efficient. This podcast is entertainment, not financial tax or legal advice. Views expressed represent statements of the speaker in their individual capacity, do not represent the views of Unchained, and should not be considered investment advice. Speakers often have personal, family, or business connections to Unchained, which may include direct financial benefits. Please see our disclosure at unchained.com slash podcast. In this show, Dhruv is explaining the foundational ideas behind his first report called How Did Satoshi Think of Bitcoin? He makes the case that sound monetary policy solved the double spend problem and that sets the stage for how Bitcoin will allow us to rebuild things like the internet, computer security, AI, and social media, all on a decentralized basis. He talks more about this in the back half of the show. You can download Drew's full report right now at unchained.com satoshi. I hope you enjoy this one. Thanks for watching, and please subscribe if you haven't already. Drew, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Thanks for having me, Joe course you haven't published too many articles in a while what have you been working on yeah it's um it's endlessly frustrating for me how much easier it is to talk about things than to write about them so i have been thinking a lot about like kind of um a bunch of themes around bitcoin and markets and layers of markets and networks and how it all develops and grows um, I've given a few talks on this. I think one of the first ones was in 2021 at the Bitcoin Miami conference. I spoke with Ryan Gentry, kind of um, some of the earlier versions of what I've been thinking kind of got put out in that talk. It was a short talk, only about 20, 25 minutes. So we went at a pretty fast pace, but we covered like a lot of material. Um, I again, spoke just this past year at BitBlock Boom here in Texas and kind of talked about what is now turning into, I think, a first article in like a new series that, I, that I've been working on. Um, and I, and I called the series, uh, what hath Satoshi wrought, which is a fun historical reference to, uh, the first, the text of the first, uh, telegram message that was ever sent. I don't mean telegram, like the mobile app. I'm talking about the actual like telegraph from like the 1800s. Uh, supposedly this is the text of the very first message that was sent. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. Um, for a lot of reasons, I like comparing, um, Bitcoin to the telegraph rather than the internet, which is the more common, um, comparison. 
Um, but the, the the series, what has Satoshi wrought? It's it's intended to be kind of like an attempt at at writing down the things I've been thinking about for the last couple of years. Um, and, and again, writing is harder than talking. So if you want to get some maybe more chaotic previews of that stuff, you can listen to some of the historical talks or listen to this podcast. But my hope is that um, the very first piece should come out um, relatively soon, and uh, the subsequent pieces to, to follow. Uh, the first piece in that series is uh, an article called uh, How Did Satoshi Think of Bitcoin? Um, and because this is a question I, I found myself thinking about a lot. Uh, it, it, I think it's really easy to regard someone or someone's um, as uh, original and as uh, brilliant as Satoshi as just like a magical person or entity. Just out of nowhere, they came up with this amazing white paper and launched Bitcoin. And of course, that's not the reality, right? Bitcoin is built on a long sequence of historical projects and incremental work that moved the ball forward. Uh, Satoshi is still brilliant and did contribute um, some meaningful new ideas, but I really wanted to understand what exactly were those new ideas and how did Satoshi have them? So for example, notions like the blockchain or proof of work being related to the creation of money or public and private key cryptography and change of signatures as defining transactions in a kind of digital currency. None of these ideas are Satoshi's. Uh, these are very old ideas. In fact, they go back to the 90s. And so in this article, it was fun for me to kind of read some of the original references. Um, that so I mean, I've read the white paper like many Bitcoiners many, many, many times, but it was fun this year to actually start reading some of the references in the white paper and go back and read and reread about Bitgold and B-Money and uh, Dwork and Nauer's original uh, proof of work paper and um, really amazed me uh, how much uh, was already done Right? And then I started thinking even more like, well, so what did Satoshi do? And so to give the answer away uh, to this first article, it's my belief that um, Satoshi's unique contribution was uh, a finite monetary supply, that B money and Bitgold and all these other projects, they, they didn't have that um, constraint in place. Uh, if you go back and you look at how Bitgold and B money were proposed to, where neither of these systems really you know, was given an implementation um, as concrete as Satoshi's uh, version vision of Bitcoin, um, and that's for good reasons. They were hard to build. They didn't really work. Um, but in their, at least in their proposed designs, um, any participant could create tokens of Bitgold or tokens of B money by performing proof of work. Um, it's a very open market, right? That's one of the strengths of Bitcoin, which I'll hopefully come back to, is that it's a very open market. Um, but in those projects, anybody could create money, and I don't think Satoshi liked that. I think we we know that Sato one of Satoshi's main goals for the Bitcoin project was eliminating the uh, breaches of trust, uh, to use Satoshi's phrase, right? That we all have to place in those who control the money supply. Satoshi really wanted there to be ultimately a finite supply of money. And it's interesting that, you know, prior to doing some of this research, I think I would have told or would have answered that, you know, what was Satoshi's most interesting, novel, unique contribution? I would have said the difficulty adjustment algorithm, right? Or, or some other um, aspect of Bitcoin. And, and I now believe that those insights and developments are actually downstream from Satoshi's real goal, which was, uh, I want to take something like B money and I want to adapt it so that users can create money so that yeah. there's a finite money supply. And I'm even to the point now where I think if you had, it was 2006 or seven, and if someone gave you a copy of the B money uh, post and said, hey, this is a pretty interesting and compelling system, but I don't like how users can create money themselves um, you know, by their own choices, I want you to eliminate that freedom from this project. And if you had been given that goal, I, I think you could have invented Bitcoin. And you know, 
the, the, this is a general view. Yeah. I don't think either you or I could have actually done that. But like the argument is that it is that kind of thinking that I think led Satoshi to Bitcoin. And you, I now can see very clearly how making modest small changes to the B money you know, proposal for how money creation should work, it very much leads directly to Bitcoin. So I find that like really interesting. And that's um, going to be the subject of the first article that's coming out. Nice. Um, ultimately, that article is trying to lay the ground for a larger vision that I've been trying to write about eloquently uh, and failing for a number of years. But I think, I'm, I think I'm finally rounded the corner and getting closer to it about how Bitcoin itself really is best thought of as a market, or in fact, as I now believe, as as layers of markets. Um, and that's kind of, at least for me, a, a, a new insight that I've only come to in like the last year or so. Yeah. I definitely want to dive into the idea that Bitcoin is is a market. Um, but you, you touched on something interesting, like the idea that absolute scarcity was like not only required, not only like that's a better form of money, but that was required to make Bitcoin work. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We can talk about that because yeah. I think I also might have said maybe last year that, yeah, what's important about the absolute scarcity and the 21 million supply limit and all that is because money that has that property is a stronger, sounder money. And I, I don't disagree with that statement. I think that's still true. But I now believe something stronger, which is uh, the desire for there to be a finite money supply is actually the essential technical simplification that was necessary to even come up with Bitcoin in the first place. I don't think you could have done it if you didn't have that goal in mind. Um, and ultimately, it boils down to, I think, um, the, the the simplest way I can I can kind of frame how that conceit simplifies the construction of Bitcoin is to talk just a little bit about how B money thought about creating the B money supply, um, and then how Satoshi's goals completely simplify that whole process. And let's see if I can get through it quickly. Um, so in B money, there are are four phases to money creation, uh, and it's called money creation, which is uh, a phrase I, I don't really associate with Bitcoin anymore. I think Bitcoin is about the, uh, the um, release of previously created money into the circulating supply, which sounds like it's a semantic shell game that I'm playing, but I, I really think that that's the better way to think about it. Um, but in B money, it's definitely about creation. So in, there are four phases in each money creation period, and you can think of a money creation period in B money like a block, if you like. That word wasn't used, but that's pretty much what they are. And in the first phase, all the, all the users of, of B money, you and I and everybody else who might be interested in it, um, we have to come up with bids. We have to say, I want to create this many tokens of B money for this much computation, you know, as measured by proof of work. Because um, again, blockchain and proof of work, these ideas were were more or less present in in B money as well. Um, so we all have to come up with these bids. Now they're not the same bids; they're different ones. We're allowed to. You're allowed to believe that we need more money right now. I'm allowed to believe that we need less money right now. But so we each have independent bids. Um, then in the next phase, we, uh, uh, having submitted our bids and created them, um, we then perform the computations independently. So you work on your bids, I work on my bids. And at the end, whichever uh, of us or however many of us, because there could be millions of users in theoretically in a system like this, however many of us were able to successfully perform the computation that we bid, uh, we then get paid the B money that was newly created. So this sounds, I hope, already superficially similar to the way that Bitcoin works, but it's it's subtly very, very different and, and much more complex. So first of all, in the sort of planning and bidding phases of B-Money, you have all of these many users that have to do stuff. And the network, the B-Money network, which was never actually built, um, has to share all these bids with all the other participants. 
Because ultimately, at the end of the process, when we finally accept the winning bids, we want to make sure we accept the highest bids as a network. So if you decide, if your bid was, I want to create a billion tokens of B money for like basically zero work. Of course, you will be able to complete that bid because you don't have to do a lot of work, but the network shouldn't want to accept that bid, right? Uh, Wei, ha Wei Dai has a very curious line in his in his blog in his post about B money where he says the network should accept B money bids in order of the nominal highest price of B money. So basically, the network wants to wants B money to be valuable, so it should somehow pick only the best bids, the highest bids. This is very challenging for a distributed system to achieve. Um, distributed systems struggle to know what is the highest amongst a set of things because in order to make that determination, all the things have to be put in one place. And I got to look at all of them and then I can pick the highest one or ones. Um, Satoshi is able to simplify this whole process tremendously because uh, it, in Bitcoin, we're not as users coming up with bids. We don't decide how much Bitcoin we want to create. Satoshi decided it, decided it in 2009 and decided there would be 21 million Bitcoin and they would be published on exactly, or sorry, released exactly on this particular schedule um, with the halvings. And we're all familiar as Bitcoiners with those numbers and that pattern. Um, and you can look at that, again, from the monetary policy side, which was, of course, part of the reason Satoshi wanted this goal of like, well, this makes it so that we have a sound money supply. Okay, great. But you can also just look at it at from the computer science distributed systems perspective and say, well, if we don't have to source, you know, millions of bids from all these users around the world, track them, sort them in terms of price, and then only pick the best ones. Um, if instead there's a predetermined money supply, well, and there's only one bid at any given moment in time. Um, it's actually probably better to call it an ask in the, in the way that Satoshi has set it up in Bitcoin. Um, and right now you, you can discover this um, consensus ask that the network offers for uh, releasing Bitcoins because you can ask your node, well, what is the current subsidy and what's the current difficulty? And their ratio, you know, up to a proportionality factor is the current price of money as priced in computations. The Bitcoin network puts out an ask. It says, in order to get this next tranche of, of Bitcoin, you have to do this much work. And there's no um, ambiguity about that number. There isn't more than one ask. That is the ask. Um, and that's important that there's only one ask because that ask is calculated deterministically by every single participant in the network. Um, we don't have to source different asks from different people. There's just one. Yeah. Um, and that's powerful because now when we get to computation, we're not in a position where all the different users who submitted bids have to each then do their independent computations, bring them together again, and the network has to choose. But that's not required. Highest is not important. The only thing that matters is first. So because the network always knows the current asking price, any miner who finds a block that meets that asking price will broadcast it. Um, and every node can accept the first block that they see that is at that asking price. So this is, forget the you know economics of whether, whether we like a finite money supply or not. If we just think about this from a practical implementation perspective, this is what allows Satoshi to build Bitcoin, whereas B money always remains just a cool idea. Um, it's very hard for a distributed system to do all the things that, that Way Dai required it to do in order for B money to exist. It's much easier uh, to have this consensus deterministic asking price and then just accept the very first block that you see. Um, and of course, that is complemented with Satoshi's longest, or as we now know, heaviest chain rule. Um, and that's ultimately what allows uh, Bitcoin to kind of do the same thing of always accepting the chain with the heaviest weight or the most proof of work, i.e., the highest prices. So there is kind of a highest um, 
principle still operating in Bitcoin, but it works in conjunction with a principle of first selection. So it's a combination sort of eager and greedy algorithm, um, which would not have been possible in a B-Money context because B-Money didn't know that there was a single ask at all times. They sort of needed to solve this communication problem amongst all these users, which was never solved. Yeah. So this is the sense in which I mean, like Satoshi's biggest contribution to, to the field of digital currency was just demanding a finite money supply. Once you make that demand, you realize you don't want users to have independent bids. You want there to be a consensus network asking price for Bitcoin issuance, um, which everyone will calculate to be the same number if they have the same copy of the blockchain. And then fascinatingly, because you get to add blocks to the blockchain on a first come first serve basis, it turns out that this actually leads to consensus about the blockchain, which is what then ensures that the asking price is the same amongst all nodes. So you have this wonderful circularity that emerges and actually allows the system to reach consensus. But that's driven, in my view, by the choice Satoshi made to restrict them the freedom of users to create money. Yeah. So you have this fascinating um, outcome that by restricting our freedoms, in this case, we actually get a system that works because we reduce the scope that the system has to take on in order to achieve consensus. So I just think that's like very cool way to think about Satoshi's contribution. And then just a final note, again, I think I would have said pr prior to this year that it was the difficulty adjustment, which was, which was Satoshi's biggest contribution. And I still think the difficulty adjustment is incredibly clever and innovative. But if you think of, from Satoshi's perspective, if Satoshi believed that all 21 million Bitcoin were already created in 2009, and that they were merely being auctioned off on a predetermined schedule, well, then it's very important that that schedule actually occur in real world time, yeah. like at the cadence that Satoshi intended. That if it happens too quickly or too slowly, well, then it's not really executing the monetary policy that Satoshi predetermined when they launched the network. So suddenly it becomes very natural to say, well, actually, I want to restrict the rate in time at which blocks occur. And that was not a requirement that B-Money or Bitgold ever proposed, because in those systems, there's no requirement that money should be created on any fixed temporal cadence because there's no monetary policy in the first place. And so all of the innovations from Nakamoto consensus to the difficulty rebalancing algorithm that allow Bitcoin to function, I think, actually come from the root idea that users don't, shouldn't have this freedom. It's predetermined. It's an auction that has to occur with a fixed time cadence, um, and then it all kind of falls out. And that's kind of the sense in which I mean, you had been asked to, hey, take B money, but adapt it to have a finite monetary supply. You might have invented Bitcoin as well. So do you think that Satoshi did actually find the perfect or optimal time cadence? Like, at what point would it have been too fast, and at what point would it have been too mm -hmm. slow? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I asked uh, Andrew Polster once many years ago um, about this, like, hey, was Satoshi just like an extra special genius and got every one of these numbers and things correct? And I think Andrew's question answer was, I think, very, very wise, which was, it doesn't matter like the actual numbers. What matters is that the numbers are close enough to being yeah. correct yeah. collectively, right? Like if, if you're familiar with the concept of like a basin of attraction, right? Like as long as the numbers that Satoshi picked put Bitcoin in that basin, um, over time we'll just iterate and stay in that basin. We won't. We, it, is a, it is a stable configuration in some sense. Um, and I think if we look at some of these numbers, like ten minutes for block times, four years for uh, having, sorry, two weeks for difficulty readjustments, four years for havings, one hundred and forty years to create the entire or shouldn't say create, should I <laughs> to release the entire supply? Um, I think individually those numbers could have been different. Like ten minutes could easily have been fifteen minutes. Yeah. 
Um, two weeks could easily have been a month. Uh, four years could have been five years. I don't think it would have mattered very much. Um, but they needed to be close yeah. to those values, right? Ten minutes could not be one minute, I don't think. One minute would have been too short, would have led to too many local forks. Um, I think four years could not have been, you know, one month. Uh, one month is not enough time for adoption to like wait to wash out over um, uh, the globe. Similarly, for difficulty readjustment, we can't, we shouldn't perform difficulty readjustment in the same way every day. For example, it's not enough time for miners um, around the planet to like bring on and take out hash rate. And so, all of these numbers are like close enough to yeah. being correct. I, I think there's it's fun to think about numerology like. 10 is just how many fingers we have. Four years is the U.S. election cycle. Um, there are things like that that, that maybe are, are the reasons those exact numbers got picked. But uh, I don't actually think it matters as long as they're all close enough. Yeah. And, and they are. Yeah, no, that's fair. So it sounds like what, you're, what you've been saying is B-Money attempted to create an optimal market for money, but Bitcoin actually did. Can you talk more about Bitcoin and markets? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this is like the, the overall theme of this series at the end of the day that I'm trying to work on is it, it, we should think of Bitcoin as uh, a market, and many of the things that we like about Bitcoin, its robustness, its censorship resistance, its ability to scale by you know, 16, 17 orders of magnitude in only 15 years, to become one of the largest supercomputing, or one of the largest computing networks, one of the largest consumers of energy out of any you know, project of its kind. Like These are incredible capabilities and achievements. Um, sometimes people will look at this and say, it's the blockchain that is causing all of this. And I view that as a little bit of, that's cargo culting. You know, that is taking an aspect of Bitcoin, which is visible, it's blockchain data structure, it's ledger of transactions and misapprehending uh, the, the causal direction here and thinking that somehow this after the fact ledger is the thing that causes Bitcoin to have its properties when it's actually just a place where certain activities are recorded in Bitcoin. It, the, the thing that gives Bitcoin all its great properties is that it's a very open, accessible and efficient marketplace. Like it is robust because people get paid to provide the service of mining. Um, your transactions won't be censored because there's no economic sense in censoring them. Some miner somewhere will want to take those sats. Um, and this is the way I think we really need to think about architecting decentralized systems going forward. Um, they have to be markets. There are, economic incentives are the only way to ensure cooperative behavior in a system that has no leader. Uh, not, no one can punish adversarial behavior. No one can kick out bad guys. Um, and so we have to make it more profitable to be a good guy than to be a bad guy. Um, I sometimes uh, think, though, that that is easier said than done. Um, if we look at Bitcoin, it, it is not actually, I think, just a single market. I think it is at least two markets, maybe more. Um, and both of these markets trade the exact same thing. They trade Bitcoin for computations. Um, but they work very differently. I think what I call, what I'm starting to call uh, layer zero is the market that I was describing previously, which is really lifted from B money, the market that uh, operates in order to release, uh, I would say, existing Bitcoin into circulation. Um, and that market has a certain set of properties and participants. There's a second market, which is the market for transaction settlement. It also trades computations for Bitcoin. Um, and it exists to allow users to actually use Bitcoin that has been released into circulation and trade it with each other. Obviously, these markets are both deeply important to Bitcoin and Bitcoin wouldn't exist if it were just one of these markets. But I think it helps to really separate them in one's mind and think about them slightly differently because they do have different properties. So for example, the, the layer zero market, I think this is a market between the entire Bitcoin network and the global mining industry. 
It is not between individuals in any way. Whereas the layer one market for transaction settlement, I think is a market between individual miners and individual Bitcoin users. And in that sense, it's very different than the layer zero market. Um, at layer zero, I say it is between the entire Bitcoin network and the entire global mining industry because uh, the aspects of consensus asking prices that the Bitcoin network offers to the global mining community. There's only one price, there's only one seller, and it's the entire network. That is it. Um, similarly, there's only one buyer um, in this case, and that is the entire global mining industry. When an individual miner, and yes, there are no individual miners, it's all mining pools and so on, but we can come back to that issue. Um, when an individual miner wins a block, it doesn't mean that that miner performed the number of computations that were in the asking price of the Bitcoin network. Um, it means that the entire industry performed that number of computations. Um, and I think that's an easy thing to overlook, but it's very important because that's not how it worked in other kinds of markets for proof of work that were proposed previously. If we go all the way back to 1993, we think about the market for email delivery that was proposed by Dwork and Nauer, one of the first sort of um, uh, uh, suggested ways to use proof of work um, in, in a decentralized system. Um, an email service provider, like someone that owns servers that forward email or whatever, would set a price. Uh, how many computations do you need to do before I'll send your email? But as the number of users uh, using a system like that increases, the price doesn't have to change, and each user is really working for, or really only um, in their own little bubble, like performing those computations. If we have one user or 10 users or 100 users or 1,000 users, each user is still doing the same number of computations, and each user is paying individually for their own ticket, their own email. Similarly, in B-Money and in Dai's proposal, uh, your bid and my bid are completely separate, and I have to do the number of computations in my bid, and you have to do the number of computations in your bid, and it's very much an individual, in that case, miner, though um, Dai didn't use the word mining, um, each individual B-Money miner was really a little market into themselves working on their own bids. Um, that's not how it is in Bitcoin in layer zero, right? There is a single asking price and it's the entire global commu community of miners that must meet that number of computations. And they must actually provide those computations. There is inherent variance in Bitcoin block times and hash rate will vary and so on. But if the miners don't produce a block of sufficient difficulty, Bitcoin will just sit there forever. Like difficulty readjustments only occur when new blocks come in. And so Bitcoin's asking price is pretty firm. Like, it, like the system doesn't iterate or change until a block comes in of that given asking price. And it's the entire network, therefore, that is paying for that. I also think it's interesting to consider when miners mine a block with zero transactions in it. Um, by definition, I would argue that when they take an action like that, they are choosing to eschew participation in the layer one market of transaction settlement. And they're only deciding to participate in the layer zero market for the issuance of Bitcoin. Um, of course, a, uh, a market in which the only thing you could do is, uh, well, maybe I'll make one more point before I make this one. Um, another thing to consider is that the script language and the Bitcoin virtual machine are really only requirements for the layer one market of transactional settlement. Um, the only thing that layer zero needs to do is get the Bitcoin to the public key of the miner that want the block. Um, but of course, if we didn't have script and we didn't have a Bitcoin virtual machine and we didn't have transactions, Bitcoin would be a useless currency. It would be a collectible. It would be a thing that you could buy in theory, um, but you could never use. And so its value would be very low. And so in this case, I see it as there's a layer zero market that is helping us issue the initial supply of the currency to get it distributed into circulation. And then there's a layer one market that 
lets us settle transactions. Layer zero wouldn't be valuable without layer one, but layer one couldn't function without layer zero because the settlement process at layer one is of course the inclusion into a block at layer zero. And the double spend problem is actually solved at layer zero, not at layer one. So I think ultimately it's interesting to think of Bitcoin not just as a market, which it definitely is, but actually as a already itself, just Bitcoin when it came out in 2009 is a, as already two layers. So internally to the project itself, Satoshi had to build multiple kinds of markets with subtly different semantics. Again, layer zero between the entire blockchain, sorry, the entire network and the global mining community and layer one between individual users and individual miners, right? That you're, individuals choose their transaction fee. It's not chosen for them in any consensus way. Individual miners choose the uh, fee rate that they're willing to include transactions. And so again, it's that's a market between individuals that is sitting on top of a market between two giant consensus entities, the, the network and Bitcoin miners. And this, I think, is the most important lesson to learn from the structure of Bitcoin. Is uh, The way I like to put it is uh, some the methodology that, that Satoshi taught us is if you would like to have a decentralized system provide a service, you should build a market. And in order for that service to be robust and that market to settle properly, you need to make the problem, the service you're providing, as small as possible, so small that it can actually be solved by markets. Um, I think this is a huge error that people who look at Bitcoin and seek to um, adapt it in some way to solve other kinds of problems. So, okay, now that we can issue money and we can do transactions, okay, I want to do arbitrary computations. I want to put my house on a blockchain. I want to do all sorts of dApps and other kinds of things. It's very cool to think about those things. I, I have, uh, even though I can call myself a Bitcoiner, I can also say that I see value in the goals there. Uh, what I disagree with about altcoins and Ethereum and all these other things is you cannot just take a very bespoke, well-reasoned, well-designed, narrow market to solve very small problems of issuance and transaction settlement and then just allow it to do every computation in the world. Like that is mispurposing the technology. It is again, cargo culting the concept of the blockchain. I think if you want to make uh, the world computer or if you want to uh, you know, put decentralized identities um, uh, somehow, uh, you have to build markets for those things. And you will never be able to build a market for all of the world's computations and all the possible applications that exist, because that is too big of a problem for a decentralized market to solve it. There, there's too much um, unknown about how to get that done. I think the approach that the Bitcoin community is taking, in which we take our layer zero and layer one markets and we start to extend them with what we now call layer two, right? We try to say that, well, maybe liquidity and sending transactions quickly is its own kind of market where the services that we're selling are uh, the provisioning of liquidity and channels that are well-connected and the finding of routes. These are all market-based services. And our challenge is, because we haven't figured out layer two yet, our challenges are, how do we do these things in the most decentralized possible way? Um, we only when we have a functioning way to do these kinds of micropayments and discover routing connections and so on between participants of that market, can we even attempt to build now additional layers? So if you want to build the world computer, you first got to build that market for liquidity and routing. You've got to figure out how to build markets on top of that for storing and accessing data, for performing computations and doing all of these things layer by layer by layer by layer. That's a much slower process than just building a Turing complete blockchain and sticking every possible thing into it as a generic computation and hoping that the system just scales forever through sharding or 
whatever approaches that folks would steal from computer science to solve what is not a computer science problem, but an economics problem. Um, I don't think that works. And it's the reason Unchained doesn't support Ethereum any longer. It's the reason I don't own Ethereum any longer is because I view that approach as fundamentally misguided. It's short-term thinking. It looks cool to build a dApp and throw it in the blockchain and it just works and look at this investor, look at that, and then people will give you money, so supposedly, for this. Um, I understand why it happens because it's shiny and it looks cool, but it's not real and it'll go away and it won't be sustainable. I'd much rather work on something that has a chance of actually working and, and being robust. And to me, that is uh, markets with very strong incentives that are impossible to kill. And so that's what Bitcoiners are working on. Let's take a quick moment to talk about the Unchained IRA. With the Bitcoin price moving above 40000 the Unchained IRA is breaking records this month. With a Roth Bitcoin IRA, you don't pay capital gains on the appreciation of Bitcoin. Unchained offers a solution. They make it simple for you to set up a Bitcoin IRA while keeping control of your Bitcoin keys. Use code FRONTIER for $100 off and schedule your free consultation today at unchained.com slash IRA. Now back to the conversation. Yeah, I want to dive into other ideas of what we could build decentralized markets on. But first, I want to ask you this question. Will the internet run on Bitcoin or does Bitcoin run on the internet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, both, I think, yeah. right? Like certainly today, um, Bitcoin needs the internet. It settles through the internet. All the information, the gossip protocols, the exchange of blocks and transactions happens on the traditional internet. Uh, mostly. I know there are some Blockstream satellites and I've heard CB radios and various things that people can use as part of the network as well, which aren't part of the, I suppose, traditional internet. But I think, again, if we think about this from a market and service provider perspective, like what is the internet, right? It is, um, the, it is a service that allows us to communicate with each other like through networks. Now, I think, unfortunately, this is part of why I like to think about the telegraph as a good example for what Bitcoin is. Like the internet is, it is the end point, is the apotheosis of a 200-year journey that humanity has been on uh, since the telegraph, right? The telegraph is the first instance where companies decided to um, build physical networks at, with capital that they raised and then charge users rent for the usage of those networks as they transmit digitally encoded information. That is exactly the internet. Yeah, the internet is bigger. It is many to many and not just one to one. Um, it's obviously faster. It is multimedia, not just texts. Um, it, it superficially looks different, but it is the exact same structure, both from a technology and uh, business model perspective. Um, and it's that way I see a direct line from something like the telegraph all the way to the internet. If you knew about the telegraph, you could have predicted the internet. And indeed, people did that. I wrote an article about this years ago in which there was a woodcut um, of, in like 1898 uh, where people are using Skype, right? It's a prediction of like, what will the future look like? And it's ridiculous because the Skype interface, like the machine that does the Skyping is like, it's got one of those ridiculous horns on it from like an old timey record player or gramophone or something. And there are, the people look very steampunk and all this, but the point is it's pretty much correct. Yeah, you can sit at your desk and you can have a conversation with someone across the world in China in real time and with with a visual and audio, auditory fidelity. That is an idea that people knew about in the 1800s because they could see how the telegraph could turn into that over time. And that's, of course, exactly what happened. And ironically, the underlying business model didn't really change. AT&T has been running this entire time. They were transmitting telegraph messages and now they're still transmitting telegram messages. They're just now telegram messages and TikToks and all sorts of weird stuff. It's the same company. It's 
the same network, more or less, um, in a lot of ways, with um, many decades of breaking apart and coming back together with the vicissitudes of legislation and monopolies and, and whatnot. But I find that funny that it's AT&T has been around pretty much the entire time. Um, so coming back to your question, yeah, Bitcoin runs on the internet for sure. But if we go back and we ask ourselves, is there a different way to provide that service to each other? Like, what do we really need here? We need ways for information to get from me to get to my intended target. Someone has to still build the network, whether it's made of physical wires or whether it's just wireless or mesh networking or satellites. Someone still has to incur capital cost for that. They need to be paid back. Um, and so they will charge a price for the usage of the things that they've built. In that sense, the model isn't different. But what's different is that entity doesn't have to be a centralized company that has to set their own protocol and centralize control over those networks and then serve as a point of subversion for governments who would like to monitor and control the traffic that is occurring in these networks. Uh, if we build it correctly, it becomes a lot more like the layer zero and layer one markets of Bitcoin in which anybody can join this marketplace. You don't have to register. You don't need um, special uh, regulatory status. You may need some capital. You may need hardware, but those are things that are accessible. People can buy those things. And moreover, they can buy these things and they can plug them in and in some cases walk away and be making sats. Mm. We don't have yet um, mesh networking kind of applications that really have scaled on Bitcoin, though people are working on them. Um, I think we're still working towards that goal because again, Bitcoin is many layers of markets. We will not go from layer zero to layer one to immediately the internet, uh, you know, Bitcoin running or Bitcoin running the internet or powering the internet. That's too many steps in between where we are today and that future vision, we need something like the Lightning Network. Um, I don't know that the Lightning Network in today's design and so on has completely solved the problems of markets that need to be solved. For example, um, even to get money from A to B in the Lightning Network, we need intermediary providers, right? There is that network. There is someone that is providing capital for that. That's uh, an opportunity cost. They have to be compensated. Um, even the knowledge of how to get from node A to node B halfway across the planet that is a valuable kind of information. That is itself a thing that is sold in these markets. If you know something about trampoline payments and stuff like this, we're still so early, not only at layer zero and layer one, but even in layer two, we, we don't, I think, fully understand the market uh, structures that are required to make layer two totally robust. Um, if we did and it existed, it becomes easier to start doing things. Well, hey, now that it's easy to get um, a certain amount of sats anywhere on the planet easily, and I have a route to it. Um, can I add arbitrary data into that into that process? Can I, you know, buy and sell information like not just payments for something that was happening in the real world, but payments that are coupled some way to the delivery or reception of data in the digital world? So now I'm monetizing every packet that is moving through the network. Um, and I think this is another like deep, cool thing. Um, about the approach of markets and decentralized systems. At each layer, there wind up being problems that you have to solve and maybe you wouldn't have anticipated in advance of getting into that layer. So for example, at layer zero, Satoshi is just trying to figure out a way to distribute a money supply like to a bunch of miners um, that are performing proof of work. But in so doing, um, in preserving, for example, the supply schedule that Satoshi desired of every 10 minutes, you know, da 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 you wind up building a global clock and you wind up building the time chain, which I think is definitely the superior word um, for that concept. I, I find that incredibly fascinating that a system of distributing um, 
digital currency turns out to be as much an energy and power network and as much a clock as merely a system to distribute funds. But I think it's interesting to see those connections crop up. Like at Light in Lightning, for example, at Layer 2, ostensibly, it is a payments network that has to solve problems of how am I going to source liquidity and so on. But actually, it's also a kind of actual telecommunications network. It's an onion routed network. We have to figure out routing, like the way that we think about routing on the internet. And that is a very hard problem. Um, I think it's very cool that the Lightning Network, I think today may already be the world's largest onion routed network. Uh, Tor is very small in comparison to the Lightning Network. Fundamentally, you don't get paid during Tor nodes. So why do people do it? Answer, they don't. <laughs> um, Sometimes they do, but there's so few people that run Tor nodes that there's strong evidence, at least historically, of governments being able to run enough exit nodes themselves that they can start to de-anonymize traffic as it leaves the onion routed part of the network. That will not be possible in a Lightning network as easily because you get paid to run nodes. So the incentive exists, and so people will do that. Again, we come back to if you want to build a robust, decentralized service provider, make it a market so that individuals who want to provide that service can easily enter and exit the market as they need to and provide the service without having to think about how do I find customers? How do I market myself? Once you join the network, you're just selling into the network. And I think that's a very powerful way to grow it. Um, I think similarly, if we try to grow past the Lightning Network into, okay, how can we get the internet to just run somehow on top of Bitcoin so that every packet of information is paid for in Bitcoin and so on, we're going to solve all sorts of other problems that we don't know about yet. We're going to have to solve problems of data marketplaces, of bandwidth, of, de of deterministic computations and verifiable computations. These are all things that have been worked on, ironically, in all the altcoin lands. They've been thinking about these issues, honestly, for 10 years. They've just made a huge mistake driven by short-term desires to fleece investors and retail folks that they can do it all today right here and right now on one blockchain. I just think that's that's a lie. Um, in some cases, it's a lie that people know about is a lie, but they hope that it won't matter, that somehow the technology will just fix itself between here and the end, or maybe they'll just be out, they'll sell their bags probably for Bitcoin before everybody else. In other cases, I think people just haven't thought about it deeply enough. They, they approached Bitcoin as though it were a technology, and so they assume that by technological inventiveness, it can be repurposed to do more powerful things. If they understood it as a market, in fact, a very specific and narrow market to sell a very specific kind of service, they might not so quickly assume that the structure of that market can be repurposed to sell arbitrary things. And they might be more willing to realize that they must build specific kinds of markets with very strong protections. I forgot to mention this, but I think another very powerful thing about Bitcoin as compared to generic human markets is that it comes with incredibly strong consumer protections. Um, no miner will ever be able to take your Bitcoin. It's not possible. Um, when you get a block, you don't have to trust the miner. You can verify the block. Um, these kinds of protections mean that we don't need regulators to police every entrant into the marketplace to make sure they're providing the service properly. It's actually more expensive for them to try to cheat and sell bad service than it is for them to just sell the good service that everybody wants. So building the kinds of rules that create that uh, um, collaborative behavior instead of allowing adversarial and scammy behavior to proliferate is really, really hard. Um, and I don't know the answers to this. I am definitely not in a position to say I know how to fix or extend or grow the Lightning Network and I know how to build the internet part of this and I know how to extend it to layer four and five and ten, partly because it, it's kind of saying like I know how to build the world's perfect city. 
No one does. Yeah. Cities grow organically. It takes decades and centuries for them to develop the neighborhoods and the thoroughfares and the connectivity and the culture that makes that city unique and, and special at work. And I think um, Bitcoin is like a city in that way. We, we cannot design what we think it's going to look like in 50 years and expect success. Like we need to let it grow. We need to let experiments fail. We need to learn from those and move forward. And it just takes time. And I think that is the the one thing that really characterizes, in my view, the difference between Bitcoin development culture and altcoin development culture is Bitcoin developers are not not trying to get it done fast, right? They're trying to do it correctly and safely and robustly so they never have to come back to it again. Um, partly because governance in Bitcoin is so difficult, right? In altcoin land, if you made a mistake, eh, you can change it later. There's only like a few guys that matter to, to fix it or whatever. And so there's an illusion that you can as a technologist, design the perfect solution and then implement it, and then it will just work. I just think that's um, misunderstanding the nature of the problem. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of those other decentralized market applications that may come out in the future, whether it's like based on identity or AI, like what those might look at? Like I know it's you said it's very difficult to predict how it might play out, but what might it look like? I think some of the ones that I think about are, are particularly interesting are, are things like uh, Twitter, for example, um, it's been interesting to watch Elon Musk take over at Twitter and attempt to solve some of the problems with perhaps good intentions, yeah. but maybe not a good enough set of ideas or maybe without being willing to violate some of the constraints or, or compromise on some of the business model aspects of Twitter. Um, I mean, so Twitter is a network. It is a database, if you like. It is a, obviously a company. It is a search algorithm. It is a feed creator. Um, it is an identity uh, mechanism. It has authentication primitives. Like Twitter does a lot of things. Um, and in general, this is how we provide services today, right? Some company does all those things and yeah. packages them up into a single thing and sells it to you. Um, and because the internet isn't natively monetized, uh, Twitter and Twitter didn't want to implement this business model, nor did Facebook, nor did any of these social networks because it would limit growth. They don't want to charge the users, at least not directly. So of course, instead of charging them in dollars or sats or any other currency, they charge them in attention. And it's the user's attention, which is then sold behind the scenes to advertisers. And this completely misaligns the incentives. Like the businesses are far more aligned with advertisers than they are with users. And I think you see this now with Elon attempting to try to create a free speech bastion, but realizing that the freer the speech becomes, the uglier it often becomes, the harder it becomes for advertisers to want to support a platform that has that kind of ugly speech on it, the less money Twitter makes, and now you're in a negative death spiral. Um, attempts at charging everybody eight bucks or whatever it is to, to use Twitter, okay, these are, you can go in that direction. But fundamentally, there's still a difficulty with this publisher platform kind of division. Um, to me, there's kind of an obvious solution to that, which is, if you would like to maintain that you're a platform and that you aren't therefore obligated to do censorship or get rid of stuff that is, you know, anywhere on the spectrum between obviously not good, like a you know child pornography or conjecturally or conditionally not good, like some political opinion on something like that. If you, if you really want to be a platform and say, it's not our job to do that, well, then you must allow other things to wear on top of you, right? There must be companies that will take the huge fire hose of whatever Twitter has and then filter it down to whatever you're interested in. Um, and then you would pay them directly for that feed. But Twitter can't 
work that way. Because if Twitter decides, hey, let's just open up our entire system so that anybody out there can just construct their own feeds, um, where will the advertising dollars go, right? It's important that Twitter can tell advertisers, hey, look, we're able to help you target the people that you want to reach. Um, and their entire business model is predicated upon serving those kinds of ads. Um, I think Elon is courageous in some ways, but I also don't think he has completely bought into this idea that fundamentally a a the town square cannot be a company. That is that is not possible. Companies don't have the interests of the town in in chief in in mind. They have the interests of their shareholders in mind. And when the entire business model of a company depends on one particular kind of activity, it's very hard to say we're just going to stop doing that. Um, I think the better approach for something like Twitter is to think of it as a decentralized service. We want to be able to share information with each other in some way online. So again, we can't go out and build Twitter chain or some nonsense like that. That's blockchain cargo culting. We must think about how do we, like Satoshi did, how do we break down a social network into small enough pieces so that each piece can independently be provided by some kind of market? So what are the pieces that Twitter needs to be broken down into? Well, there's the ability to send messages, to store those messages, to retrieve them. This is kind of like a data marketplace kind of functionality. This is generic. A lot of services need something like that. There's also services like search and indexing and being able to find something in this giant pool of tweets of the world. Um, that's a generic service too. Um, there's the notion of identity and reputation. There's the notion of feed construction and all these things. Instead of a single company which takes on each of these vertical functions and then packages them into a horizontal application with all those capabilities, I think what we need is verticalized markets that solve these problems in a generic way. So there's some market that just stores arbitrary data and allows us to retrieve it again. It's This market is itself sitting on you know, decades from now, probably uh, a very robust market for sending packets and paying for those packets with something like the Lightning Network. Um, there's another generic vertical for like, oh, if you, I will perform search and indexing for you on arbitrary data. There's another vertical that talks about feed generation. And I know you're interested. Like, if these things become independent markets, well, then what Twitter is is a set of protocols that connect markets together. And now we're getting some of the the benefits of the robustness of markets. It will be very hard to eradicate bad content or to censor people in this because there will always be some data provider that's willing to store those tweets. There will always be someone that's willing to serve them back to you because you're just paying them directly in that moment uh, in Satoshis for the data that you want. Um, I think in particular, this is a really powerful notion too that uh, and maybe we can come back to this, which is like markets are very efficient when there is no kind of like centralized inefficiency premium on the data that's being exchanged. So when I buy that tweet, from whoever I bought it from on the marketplace that sits on top of the internet that provides data and so on, I shouldn't be paying a premium because it's a special tweet that came from some famous person. It's their property somehow. That's not the idea. I should be paying the absolute minimum that is required for the data to arrive at my location. And if these markets are truly efficient, like that is how they will operate. Um, and so I think, uh, so I talked a little bit about Twitter. Um, Maybe we can come back to some of the AI and identity stuff here in yeah. a second, because I wanted to provide another example, which is um, GPS. This is also a service I think about geolocation as a marketplace. Like today, GPS, which is so deeply important and embedded into life, like try getting Uber Eats without GPS, it's not going to happen. Um, in fact, it's funny, I was in New York in the, in the late 90s, and there was a service called Cosmo, which existed there, which was basically just Uber Eats yeah. and Favor, and you could just do anything you want. I want 
you know, a soda, a pack of cigarettes, you know, a book, like whatever. They were supposed to go get it for you, bring it to your, um, for me, it was a dorm room in that era. Um, but the service was so before its time because no one had cell phones and there was no GPS. So imagine Favor or Uber Eats or Postmates or whatever without any of that stuff. Gosh. It doesn't work, right? <laughs> um, but of course, GPS is, is interesting because it's provided, uh, you know, how does it work, right? We need three satellites to range find off of to locate our position in three-dimensional space on the surface of the earth, et cetera, et cetera. Who operates those satellites? It's the U.S. government. Um, they... Uh, they, they are able to monitor usage of GPS. They're able to control uh, access to those satellites. They're able, fundamentally, they, they own that system. It's a yeah. very centralized um, system. And, and I, there are different flavors of GPS with different like resolutions and so on. It's all provided by the same um, government because they originated this technology. I often think to myself, like, what would it take to build a decentralized marketplace version of GPS? Like, how does that even work? Like, well, yeah, okay, someone might have to put satellites up there. That's fine. Like, that's one way to do it. But then I also think about, like, well, really, if we're decentralized, like, I don't need the, the, the GPS resolution of the satellite to be that good. I can range find off of many peers that are right here in my local environment. Um, why would they provide that capability? Because I would be paying them. Someone would be paying them. And I think this is the hard part of building markets like this, is you have to sort of think about, like, how can I build that so that it makes sense on its own that someone would buy and sell that thing? Um, and it's kind of hard to do, right? It's hard to build a market that is all of Twitter. It's easier to build a market that does just the storing and retrieval of data in, in a general context. I think it's hard to build a perfect GPS system. It's easier to build something in which you're paying folks for range finding proofs of each other. Um, and I think this is like, there's almost a, a, an engineering field that is being invented here slowly of like, how do you take a thing which you know how to build in a centralized way coordinated by a company or a group of individuals and turn it into a thing which is really only coordinated by economic incentives. Again, the short-term bad answer is program the same thing that you would have programmed centrally into this decentralized smart contract. That's not a real solution because that doesn't scale because a blockchain with smart contracts attempts to be selling you the service of arbitrary computation and data storage at layer zero, which is not going to work. So I think this is a very difficult problem, but it's a problem that we are going to solve because increasingly we will develop this as a discipline. It will not just be people shooting from the hip. There will be real research programs. There will, be, there will emerge theorems and lemmas and best practices and lots of tools that we can use to help model and engineer these things um, differently than what we do today. And, and of course, needless to say, none of these, I think, really require altcoins or special tokens or anything like that because the it's the money that is the technology, right? People will do these things because they want, in particular, they want Bitcoins. Um, that's why the Lightning Network exists. There aren't, I know there are things like Taro and special tokens that can be constructed on Lightning, but fundamentally, Lightning's incentives are denominated in Bitcoin. It's not, doesn't need a new token to create those incentives. So I think that's the very hard thing to do. And again, I don't know how to build all those things because I don't know how to plan a city 100 years into the future. But this is the kind of work that I think we're all going to be doing. And so maybe then we can get into, okay, say you had this incredible Bitcoin-powered internet that is really just about people being paid for service. Like, what changes? What gets built? What's How is the world different? And so, yeah, let's talk a little bit about those decentralized market applications for security and AI as well. Uh, yeah, we could. there's a lot of things. Like, I touched on Twitter. I touched on GPS. But I think there's, there's so many more. Okay, so let's... Let's talk. Let's touch security first. I think this is an interesting one. I think the world's most secure software today is Bitcoin Core. Like, if there existed, 
a bug today in Bitcoin Core that allowed someone to steal sats, mm -hmm. um, it would be being exploited. And we would all know about it and we would try to fix it and so on. I, I'm not saying that the software is perfect, but I'm saying that there are no known bugs in it um, of that kind. There are many small bugs in Bitcoin, that's fine. But there are not any that allow for the loss of um, cryptocurrency or, or the loss of Bitcoin or the stealing of blocks or anything like that. It's a very solid system. I want to compare that in contrast with traditionally the way that computer security works, which is um, it's an economics situation, right? Like uh, I think going back to layer one as a world computer, um, you don't want arbitrary computation because arbitrary computations are dangerous and impossible to predict um, because of the halting problem, et cetera, et cetera. When you have a thing that can compute anything, you cannot predetermine what it's computing. Like there's no way to do that. The only thing you can do is you can run it and you can see what it does. Um, part of the reason ETH, actually the only reason ETH and other altcoins have the concept of gas and, and the need that concept is because they have no idea what a given smart contract call is going to do. It could call an infinity of other smart contracts. It could run forever. It could loop. Um, Bitcoin smart contracts cannot do these things. They are finite state machines that you can prove will use a bounded amount of resources and time to execute no matter what the redeem script says or looks like. This is very powerful. It means Bitcoin doesn't need gas, but Ethereum does. Okay, so that's one comment. Um, second comment is going back to security. Um, because you can't just look at a piece of code and determine that it is secure by figuring out exactly what it does in every possible situation, because that's fundamentally impossible. It's not a question of our talent or skill. It's just impossible to do. Um, it means that computer security kind of boils down to how much energy you want to put in and time you want to put into this. And for almost almost all businesses, uh, the correct answer is as little as possible, right? Um, what is the worst outcome if my traditional big company experiences a security breach or has a bug in our software that causes uh, security problems for clients, maybe even causes money to be stolen from it, causes their identities to be stolen? What's the worst possible outcome? little bit of reputation risk and maybe i get hit with a small 10 50 million dollar fine by some government agency that's equivalent to what my business probably makes in six days <laughs> um so why would i spend hundreds of millions of dollars to have world-class security programs that protect my users and so on like i don't i just wait for stuff to break i apologize profusely uh i fix it and then i move on and this is cheaper than providing good security proactively for for most businesses so that's part of the existing economics about computer security and software and network um, security comes from. Uh, there are some places, uh, I think Unchained is one of them, and there are many others that actually do care about security a lot. Um, the government, uh, the NSA, uh, Google, uh, huge companies and companies that have a lot to lose do care about security. We spend a lot of resources um, on making sure our software is as secure as possible. But again, because of these fundamental problems, we can never be perfect about it. It's very hard to do that, even if you have an incredible team. And we know this because everyone gets hacked eventually. The NSA has been hacked. Google has been hacked. The NSA's own hacking tools have been hacked out from underneath them and sold on the dark web for Bitcoin. Uh, there's a famous Shadow Brokers hack. Check it out. It's amazing. Uh, it's a Mass Effect reference as far as I know, which makes me even happier. But um, there's a, so there's deep economics embedded in the computer security already. Um, and I think the, the important thing to think about is the, the market for zero days, which is a fascinating little corner of the dark web. Um, so, and the reason, <clears throat> so a zero day vulnerability is a vulnerability in a, in a computer software that 
some attacker knows about, but the defenders don't know about yet. So it is a in Microsoft Word or in the Windows operating system or in a mobile phone or something like that. Uh, there's something that it's that there's a bug there, and it allows you to do something like get into that device or repurpose it for your own malintent. Um, and some attacker has found it. So what does that attacker do when they find this bug? Um, they can attempt to uh, tell the creator of the software about this and as a white hat and say, hey, I found this bug. And depending on how severe it is and how good that provider is at bug bounties and, and whatever else, it is possible that maybe they'll get paid a little bit. Um, but for a lot of uh, attackers, uh, especially black hats, it turns out that the more economically profitable thing to do when you discover a zero-day vulnerability um, is uh, to sell it to a different attacker. And this is interesting because it, it, the, what's happening here is the person who discovers the vulnerability does not have the capability of directly profiting from it. Like, if I can get into your dad's Microsoft Word, like, all right, what am I going to do? Like, I don't care. Um, conversely, uh, there exist people who want to get into things but yep. don't know how. Um, so great examples are things like there's some industrial control software that Siemens makes or something like this. And and I'm just a guy that and I figured out a way to break into those things, but it's not going to help me. But the U.S. government desperately wants to break the uranium centrifuges in Iran. And they would love to purchase this vulnerability so that they can exploit it. So there's this gap between... Um, the knowledge of a vulnerability and the ability to exploit that vulnerability in a profitable way for you. So markets are good at connecting buyers and sellers to close these kinds of gaps. So there exists a dark web market for selling vulnerabilities, for selling zero days. Um, and this makes all the economic sense in the world. If you are an attacker and you lack this capability, but it's a very juicy bug, you yourself have no need to get into Microsoft Word or Siemens operating systems or whatever, but the government does or some other attacker does, sell it to them. And the amount of money you will make by selling this exploit is so much more than you would make by selling it uh, or reporting it as a white hat. And so for a lot of attackers who who have a job of basically looking for vulnerabilities, their, their intent is to sell it to somebody else in the zero-day market. But there will never be, going back to my earliest comments here, there will never be a zero-day marketplace for a bug like this in Bitcoin. Because if an attacker were to find a bug that allowed them to steal Bitcoin, they will just steal the Bitcoin, <laughs> right? And I find this to be an incredibly powerful asymmetry between bugs that occur in Bitcoin and bugs that occur anywhere else in the world of digital systems because Bitcoin is money and nothing else is money. Um, it's kind of like uh, the old economics, economics joke of like two economists are walking down the street and one says, oh, that's a $100 bill on the floor. And the other guy's like, no, it couldn't be because then someone would have picked it up, right? It's that kind of thinking here. Um, there cannot be zero days in Bitcoin Core, or I would argue in uh, wallets that are adjacent to Bitcoin Core and, and da da da, because people will exploit those bugs. And then by definition, they're not zero days because they're being actively exploited, which means defenders are seeing the exploits, which means they now know about them and they can begin to patch those holes. So Bitcoin is either um, secure in the sense of no one knows any bugs or it's being actively exploited. And that is a much safer position to be in if you're a defender than there being a third category, which is, no, it's insecure. We just don't know about that yet because that bug hasn't been sold to someone who's going to exploit it. I think as software develops and more and more software becomes uh, interoperative with Bitcoin, more and more software starts to be able to interact with Bitcoin to spend it, more and more software becomes directly attackable by hackers who have uh, bugs and zero days that they find. Um, in particular, if we go back to our prior conversation of thinking about 
Bitcoin is underlying a new kind of monetized internet. Well, at this point, any piece of software that can talk to the internet can spend Bitcoin. If I can get your laptop to request a one-by-one -one pixel GIF from my server a million times, I might get a lot of sats out of that because you're paying for each of those requests somehow. So at this point, suddenly the economics of software security completely changes. We, it, it, everybody is incentivized to build good software because the second you have bad software, people exploited to steal Bitcoin from your users. It's not just an inconvenience. It's not just, oh, some of my personal data was leaked, but like, whatever, I don't care. Um, I have nothing to hide, like that kind of a thing. It becomes, wait a minute, you're literally stealing my Bitcoins right now. Like, I'm not going to use this software. Okay. So I feel it increases consumers' um, sophistication and demand for good, secure software. It also means that zero days become much less prevalent because if all software connects to Bitcoin somehow, because all software is plugged into an internet that runs on Bitcoin, well, then a bug in Microsoft Word will be immediately exploited, just like a bug today in Bitcoin Core. So I believe that Bitcoinizing the internet, if you like, actually closes the gap between the knowledge of exploits and the ability to, to leverage them economically. And I think it destroys the market for zero day vulnerabilities. And I think at the highest level of computer security, like the NSA and Google, and I think places like Unchained, the things we actually worry about are zero days. Like known bugs are not how you get into our systems. You get in because you, there was something that you knew that we didn't. And this terrifies me as a, as a person responsible for making sure Unchained and our clients are well protected. I actually would rather live in a world where all bugs are shallow because the second someone finds a bug, it starts being exploited. And that's true in web software, it's true in email software, it's true in PDF viewers, it's true in every little operating system, every part of the stack suddenly is exploitable. Um, and to a degree, this sounds terrifying, right? This is like I'm advocating for attacks to become so easy that they become so prevalent that everyone notices them and then we start taking them more seriously. But to a degree, I think this is just the nature of economics and security everywhere. If you live in a good neighborhood, you might not lock your doors. Um, if you live in a bad neighborhood, you might have a lot of locks on your doors and you might bar up your windows and you have good security, quote unquote, as a result. On the internet, like everyone lives in the same neighborhood and it's a bad neighborhood. And the problem is we just don't know how bad of a neighborhood it is because most people's houses, quote unquote, have nothing of value in them, yeah. right? Suddenly, when every house in this analogy has Bitcoin, it's something valuable, and attackers know that there's a way to get in, they're immediately going to start robbing everybody. And then everyone's going to freak out. They're going to build better houses. Everything will get more secure. Everyone get, gets bars on their windows. Everyone gets multiple locks. And I would much rather live in a world where people take computer security seriously. Um, and so I think Bitcoin will have that effect. Um, and again, this is not because of the blockchain or because of... Um, hash rate security or any kind of other thing. It's just some economic interaction between um, black hats, uh, Bitcoin, and defenders. And I think, uh, especially as AI starts to, starts to become a greater tool, that, so it's not just exploits in software, it's now exploits in human minds, where you can get a combination of zero days and AI-powered uh, conversations and attackers and videos and emails. Together, this makes it so much harder initially for defenders, but I think long-term, it's a great outcome, right? It means it's, it's almost like your immune system or it's like if you're being attacked all the time, which you are, like you're surrounded by microbes right now that are constantly attacking you, but it's no big deal because your immune system has learned ways of defending against them. There are no zero days there, right? Like a zero day in a biological context is something like a novel pandemic. 
um, something that no one has defense against that starts to decimate populations. But then, of course, we adapt to it, right? That's what's incredible about biology is somehow, despite lacking a designer or any kind of centralized control process, populations are very quickly able to adapt to these novel attack vectors. And I think to a degree, Bitcoin kind of brings some of the aspects of biology more than computer science into the security arena, into, into many arenas. Some of the robustness and heterogeneity of biological systems, um, I think it's reflected by Bitcoin uh, because of the changing economics that it brings to kind of these spheres. So can you talk a little bit more about AI and how it affects these systems? Yeah, I, I, I did give a talk this year on, I think, some more esoteric uh, ideas around Bitcoin and AI or more like artificial life and metabolism and all sorts of, of heady notions. But I think I'll avoid that for, for this discussion and I'll try to tie it back into uh, notions of the internet uh, running on Bitcoin and stuff. And, and this is actually, to me, kind of um, deeply personal too. My, my wife is a screenwriter and um, she's a member of the Writers Guild America and we live in Los Angeles now because she got a great job in Netflix writing a TV show. Um, and as soon as we moved there, they went on strike, which was <laughs> deeply ironic. <laughs> and she wasn't allowed to work. And so a lot of times over this last year, uh, the strike is resolved now, hopefully things are getting better. But um, a lot of times this year we would talk, oh, and at the same time, AI is kind of rising this year, right? It's been a big year for AI. So she and I would talk a lot about like, and in fact, part of the, what the writers have been striking about is the notion that somehow AI can be used to replace human beings and replace content creators and all this stuff. Um, so I think it's been interesting for, for she and I to kind of talk about some of these issues because it's really got me thinking a lot about the nature of intellectual property um, and AI and, and in fact, Bitcoin. Um, and at this point, I kind of think about it like sort of a, a four-stage process where kind of the end is like the beginning is the end again. Um, and maybe I'll try to tell it historically. Uh, I think if you go back, uh, you know, let's say 500 years, uh, there is no intellectual property whatsoever um, because piracy is trivial in that era, right? If I write a great novel or I write an amazing song, um, I can't stop people from stealing it. Like it's, you know, it's 1500. I can't get over there. I can't monitor them. Um, there's no copyright law. There is no ability for me to have a checksum. There's distribution of information is not controlled by centralized companies that like publish things and prevent you from buying that thing or selling it yourself. You can be a pirate by just copying something, you know, down to another scroll or just memorizing a song and then playing it yourself somewhere else. So if we think about how are content creators historically compensated, the answer is through direct patronage and performance. Um, the model that we have today or, or that we've had for a long time today, which is that intellectual property has become kind of an industrialized um, process where we have publishing houses, we have uh, telecommunications companies, we have the ability to lock down distribution. Um, and it is only with that ability that intellectual property gets to thrive because now you get to say, I own that idea, that book, that song, that movie. And because those who own intellectual property collaborate with or oftentimes are the same as those who own the content distribution networks through which that property must be delivered to consumers, it is easy to defend IP. And if you can defend IP, then IP is valuable. And IP then becomes an industrial process of hiring people like my wife to produce IP, which then gets owned by a company which has a portfolio of IP that then seek to earn 
uh, rent on, right, by distributing it through some distribution network. This is where we've been for a very long time. Um, how does AI change this? Well, I think creators are right to be a little bit worried. In, in a world like this, uh, companies who own IP maybe don't need creators anymore. Um, if creators produce something interesting and novel and cool because they're humans and we're very creative and we have the best tunes and memes, AI can replicate it. And we can write a poem in the style of that new rapper that everyone likes, right? That's a thing that an AI can do these days. And as AI becomes more capable, it'll only become even better at producing content for us. And because it has no rights, it is a kind of weird digital slave, um, it is much cheaper to have AI produced IP than it is to have humans produce IP. And so what happens to the poor writers? Um, also, if the writers try to do the same thing, if they try to steal the things that um, companies are making, that's not going to work because AI is actually going to help police the distribution of content online. It's hard to be a pirate these days. That means intellectual property continues to be valuable. Distribution networks continue to be locked down. But AI creates um, adverse pressure on content creators because it is true that it's a huge lift up for those who own portfolios of IP and for those who own distribution networks. Um, I think Bitcoin explodes the situation and, and returns us to the era of 500 years ago in the sense that... If it is possible to, uh, if, if the internet runs on Bitcoin and you can just pay for the content that you want directly from whoever delivered it to you, then piracy becomes very profitable in a way that it was not. Like I grew up in the 90s and 2000s, I went to college in that era, and piracy was kicking off in a big way, right? We had just figured out BitTorrent and Kazaa and LimeWire and all these things. And I was definitely uh, of the generation that just amassed, you know, 100 gigabyte collections of movies and TV shows and my favorite songs and video games and MP3s and all this stuff and Spotify and these various streaming networks, they, they didn't exist yet, right? Um, but why did piracy ultimately fail? Because I don't think most people are pirating these days any longer. It failed because uh, despite the fact that we could get these stolen files onto the internet, uh, content distribution was still locked down to a few different network providers. Like AT&T still owns the network so they can monitor what you're putting on there and you can get a DMCA takedown notice delivered to your dorm. This happened to my roommate back in the day. <laughs> and so since you're not getting paid to see these files on BitTorrent or LimeWire or Kazaa, you stop doing it. Yeah. And so piracy kind of gets strangled on the vine because people own content distribution still. And then of course they go ahead and they build streaming services, which is actually kind of awesome, right? So now we don't have to pirate because we're just getting what we wanted, which is just instant real-time access to the entire catalog of the world's content for a modest fee. Like that's a wonderful like situation to be in as a consumer. Um, but fast forward to 15 years now, now what is the situation? We are all now paying more for streaming services across like 15 different providers than we were paying for cable back yeah. in 1995. They've, they've un, uh, unsurprisingly just recreated the same situation that we were fleeing from when we first turned to piracy in that era. But the difference is now we have Bitcoin. Um, and I don't know if uh, you or other listeners have ever heard of tools like Plex or various other things. These are some very cool modern pieces of software that look and feel just like Netflix. So you can have a collection of 100 gigabytes in movies. You can throw Plex on top of it. You can give a login to your friends to come to your Plex server. And they can just surf your movie collection and browse it and watch it. And you know, you're supposed to own the digital rights to all those movies and so on, but a lot of people today are still pirating and they're using things like Plex as a way to get access to that. They're still not quite being paid. 
But imagine that you could get played. Imagine that you were getting paid in SaaS for giving people access to your Plex server and letting them download movies from you. Now suddenly piracy is not a thing you do because you're a college student or an anarchist or a cypherpunk. It's a thing you do because you're a business person and you want to make money by pirating data online. Um, and if they keep making us buy 20 different you know, streaming services and piracy and software like Plex starts making it easier and more attractive and kind of the same user experience actually at the end yeah. of the day and actually maybe cheaper and uh, you don't get ads anymore and you're not being monitored and not tracking what you're watching as much because they just don't care because that's not what they're paid for. They're just paid to get you the data you wanted and requested. I think piracy has a shot again. Um, and I think, in fact, like there's my belief is that the, the, the Bitcoin-powered internet actually will work better than today's internet. It will be faster. It will be more reliably, more efficient. So I think we will get to a point where piracy ultimately is a superior delivery mechanism than streaming those bytes centrally out of Netflix. Um, we'll be pirating to each other. We're both watching Game of Thrones in two neighboring homes. That data isn't being sent twice. It's being sent once. And then I'm sharing it with you and you're paying me just as much as you were paying the original pirate for it. I think what's compelling about this vision is it essentially destroys intellectual property once more. That if if we are if the distribution networks are no longer centrally controlled, if there are decentralized services that are being provided through markets, then IP cannot be defended any longer. And if IP cannot be defended any longer, it ceases to exist. And then what is the outcome for content creators? They return, I think, to patronage and direct performance. And instead of success being, I got picked up by a record label, they now own what I do, and they charge everybody else to see it, and they clamp down on anybody seeing it for free, it returns to, how do I find success? I find 10,000 true fans, and they directly pay me for my work, and I go and perform concerts. And maybe there's fewer Beyonce's, people who are making you know hundreds of millions or billions of dollars a year or whatever it is, because they're in such a position of power that their content is the most monetized content in there. But conversely, I think it opens the door to a long tail of smaller artists actually being able to make a living again because the things we will value will no longer be the purchasing of that particular set of bytes because that will be done at the absolute lowest market cost you can possibly get. There will be no IP premium, so to speak, for the data that you purchased. It'll just be what it costs to deliver it to you in the cheapest possible way. People's budget will now go to directly supporting the artists they care about the most. Um, and I feel like I'm a little bit ahead of this trend, and as are a lot of people, uh, I'm not a pirate. But I do use Patreon, for example, which is kind of a centralized version of how patronage could work. And at this point, I'm paying more for content creators on Patreon than I am for streaming services. I'm still paying a lot for streaming services, annoyingly. But um, but I love this model because it feels like I get a direct relationship with the artists and content creators that I like. And I get to support them. And honestly, I get to talk to them through Patreon. That's kind of one of the charms of like, hey, I really liked that last video you put out. I think you should do one on this next. And they're open to it because they're recognizing that that direct relationship with their fans is actually, it's possible to monetize that through Patreon. And Patreon is honestly still a centralized system. It's not the best possible way in the future we could do this. You can imagine better versions. But I really like this conceit that Bitcoin is kind of taking us back to 500 years ago where IP doesn't exist any longer because it can't be defended. And as a result, I think we enter a golden age of human content. Like everything that you want is accessible at the lowest possible cost artists are not screwed out of it because they're still getting paid directly by their fans. And I, I even love the idea that AI is participating in that eventually, okay. that you can just pay the AI directly for the things that you want it to create for you. Um, custom content directly patronized by the people that want to see it. So again, this is kind of 
going back to instead of centralized service providers having verticalized stacks and having to do marketing to provide a horizontal product, this is just verticalized distribution that suddenly like frees us from having to worry about like the controls and vicissitudes of those centralized providers again. Yeah, the security and AI topics just absolutely blew my mind. Um, this is this is great. Um, any final thoughts or closing thoughts that you want to tell the audience? Um, I think obviously you and I, Joe, have talked a lot about what's the theme of this podcast, like the Bitcoin frontier. I think I particularly like that framing because for me, Bitcoin it 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 is a wave that is expanding, you know, at light speed throughout you know throughout our human universe here, and the parts of the interior. Um, which are most understood, which are core, which I think a lot of the things that Unchained works on and our own business and custody and financial services, these are of course very important and they anchor everything else that happens. But I can't help but being most excited by the things at the edges, man. I think it's completely fascinating um, to think about how Bitcoin affects and interacts and disrupts uh, other human networks besides just money. Um, money touches everything and in that way Bitcoin touches everything and transforms it. I, and it kind of comes back to me to to Amara's law, you know, like we we overestimate the effect of technology in the short term, and we underestimate it in the long term. And I, I I try not to fall prey to that. I try not to think that a year from now Bitcoin will be worth a million bucks, and I'll just be a rich fat cat somewhere. I, I don't think that will happen. I do think it will happen long term. But then the change will not be I'll be rich. The change will be like the world will just be different. And I think that's far more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Drew, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down and, and talk about this. Thanks, Joe.